And when the Israelites came to the districts of the Jordan, which are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half of Manasseh built a sacrificial altar there, by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size, large to see. And behold, when the children of Israel heard about it, they said, Here the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar near the Jordan River, on the opposite side from us, in the land of Canaan. And hearing this, the people of Israel gathered, the whole assembly, that is, at the place called Shiloh, to go up against them in force. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. And the story that begins today's discussion, a portion of which I just read to you, comes from the book of Joshua. It is, I think, a lesser-known story, but no less thought-provoking and instructive. The era in which our story takes place is during the Israelite conquest of the Promised Land. Joshua is the leader of the small nation which, by this point, is almost ready to settle down and plant roots, for it has claimed pretty much all of the land that it will. Nahar HaYarden, the Jordan River, is an integral part of today's tale. This river, which has the lowest elevation of any on earth, flows north to south, from its headwaters near Mount Hermon in the northeast, not far from where modern-day Israel, Syria, and Lebanon meet, then eventually into a freshwater lake called by various names, but here we'll note it as the Sea of Galilee, then emerging from the southern aspect of this lake, the Jordan continues south until its terminus at one of the saltiest bodies of water known to this planet, the Dead Sea. The importance of the Jordan, as it relates to us today, is that, like all rivers, it segments the land through which it flows and creates a natural barrier, a geographic separation between those who live on the one shore from the other. In modern times, it separates Israel from Jordan, but in the waning chapters of the book of Joshua, it separated Israel from Israel. Nine and a half tribes live to its west, while the remaining two and a half lived to its east. The two halves in question are the two halves of Manasseh, the tribe descended from Manasseh, who was the elder son of Joseph, who was one of the twelve sons of Jacob Israel. It should be noted that the term half-tribe is not to say that half of the people were missing or any such thing. Rather, it refers to the fact that half of the tribe lived to the east of the Jordan, while the other half lived to the west. Returning to the tale where we left it, at the waning hours of Israelite conquest of the Promised Land, which has been divvied up in such a way that nine and a half tribes lived west of the Jordan, between that river and the Mediterranean Sea, while the other two and a half lived in the Transjordan territory across the Jordan River, east of it. Though at this point we are not told why, nevertheless the eastern tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, have built themselves an immense altar. The rest of the nation, upon receiving the news, was outraged. They assembled at Shiloh and resolved to go up against their fellow countrymen who had built the altar, to go up in force, 
with intimidation and authority, and if need be, to wage war. The nine and a half tribes sent a delegation of ten elders and Phineas the priest to Reuben Gad and the half of Manasseh. We have heard troubling news. Hark, thus says the Lord to this entire community. What is the sacrilege with which you blaspheme God and build yourselves an altar to violate the Lord's command? Are yesterday's sins not enough for you? Is it too little that we still reel from the wrongs committed at Peor, the plague we endured? You turn away from the Lord today, but it is the whole of our people who, tomorrow, will endure God's fury. Brothers, return to the Lord and do not revolt. If this land of yours is polluted, then join us across the river, dwell in our midst and in the midst of the Lord's tabernacle. Do not build this altar separate from the true altar of God. Remember when Achan son of Zerah committed sacrilege with the sacred things? It was not just he who got punished, but the whole of Israel. Those speaking on behalf of the two and a half tribes replied thus, The Lord is God over every other God. The Lord knows the truth of these things, and now you will too. If this altar is blasphemous or intended against our God, or with any sinful intent, then strike us down here and now. If this was made to receive offerings, the grain offerings or the peace offerings or any other type, then may the Lord himself examine it. But behold, is it not because we are deeply concerned? Having said to ourselves, one day your descendants might say to us, because you live across the Jordan, you are not a part of Israel. You have no inheritance in the Lord. Alas, that you should ever say such a thing because we live here and you, you live there. So we acted. We built for ourselves this altar, not for offerings and oblations, but as a symbol between you and us, as a reminder to your children and ours, that if you should ever tell us you are not a part of Israel, then we could say, then how do you explain the replica of the Lord's altar here in our presence as a witness between us, that we are just as much Israelites as you are, and that we call upon the name of the Lord just as you do? Finally. After reflecting upon these words, Phineas the priest, speaking for the ten elders and the tribes they represented, replied, What you say is good. We know that the Lord is truly in our midst, and that you have not blasphemed against the Lord, and that the children of Israel are safe. Thus the altar they called witness, saying that it was a witness between them and the Lord. The events remembered in the 22nd chapter of Joshua are so very rare that I wonder how many times across the whole of history they have happened. And yet, what makes them so incredible is how exceedingly common their setup is. Begin the tale wherever you'd like, one month or one millennium, or several epochs before the altar was constructed. But for the sake of argument, Let's suppose that it began as the twelve tribes were dividing up their recently conquered promised land. It just so happened that a river separated the twelve tribes into nine and a half and two and a half. Separation of the nation and the physical barrier betwixt its moieties carried no ill will or malice, nor was it necessarily intended, only that it happened. 
some of the tribes being separated from the others, did not pose much concern initially. But then, in the heads of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, gears started to turn, and they asked themselves, what is there, really, preventing, and say 50, 100, maybe even 200 years from now, our countrymen across the Jordan will all of a sudden look at us and say, those people over there are not full-fledged Israelites. They live far away, across the river, in a different country, practically. And what's to stop them from telling us, look here, you are no longer allowed to worship the Lord at the tabernacle because you aren't true Israelites. Indeed, you are pseudo-Israelites because we, the real children of Jacob, the actual people of God, live west of the Jordan, whereas you, yes, you, live to the east. This train of thought chugged along and gathered steam, until finally Reuben, Gad, and the half of Manasseh resolved to build a monumental replica of God's altar that was at the tabernacle in the presence of not only the coffer or Ark of the Covenant, but the presence of Lord God Almighty. They built it as a flag, a symbol, intended to obviate the rift that they were anticipating in their minds. With such a replica, they thought, should our fellows ever approach us saying that we do not belong to God, then we will reply, well, then explain why our ancestors built this giant altar, and explain how they knew its look and proportions, if they had not been intimately acquainted with the tabernacle, if they had not made offerings at its offering place. Now, if we pivot, realize that this heated argument, who is or isn't a true Israelite, what is or is not the purpose of the altar in question, existed only in their heads. There is no indication that such civil strife was either happening or impending. Although we laud Reuben Gad and the half of Manasseh for their critical thinking, their anticipation and obviation of possible futures, their concern, though justifiable, is nevertheless unproved. They were solving a problem that did not yet exist, and may never have existed. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Jordan, the nine and a half tribes discover the construction and become worried. For them, it is more than trivial dismay. Indeed, they think that the two and a half tribes have gone off the deep end, abandoned the law of Moses and God's holy instructions. They have decided to worship God in a system of their own making, going so far as to build their own sacrificial altar in ridicule of and sacrilege by the true altar in the tabernacle. What's more, the nine and a half are not only concerned about the other's blasphemy, but they are worried that, as has happened before in their history, when a subset of Israel sins, all are punished. The examples of Baal Peor, where the people fell into idol worship, causing God to send a plague on the congregation, and Avakan ben Zerah, who stole bounty that had been set aside for God and caused all Israel to incur divine wrath, proved as much, not to mention that some of the Israelites in this story would have grown up wandering through the desert until their parents' generation died out, God's punishment to them because a faction of the whole had doubted God's ability to win the land for them. So when it came to the issue of the altar, the nine and a half tribes were scared. They were afraid that their brothers and sisters across the river had forgotten their mores, adopted a false method of worship, and subjected all twelve tribes 
to the judgment of God. Next, they responded, and they did so in such a way that makes sense for a group of people who are concerned that a renegade faction of their society stands poised to overthrow the closest thing that nation has known to peace since nearly time immemorial. The nine and a half prepared to confront the other two and a half, and a large gathering was assembled so that they, if need be, could quickly overpower and subdue the wayward tribes. This is the setup that is commonplace. For is it not typical that, of two groups of people, even with more in common than they have different, one feels threatened by the other, even when there is no evidence of foul play? But in a universe in which a certain hypothetical sequence of events is not impossible, the two such groups will fall into a misunderstanding and each prepare to assert their position lest the other overrun it. Fear of a situation creates the situation that is feared. Acting as though a problem exists births the very problem that is dreaded, but had previously not existed. One group prepares for an attack from the other, and the other, previously amicable, now prepares itself also. Hostilities arise, and the two prepare for conflict. Though no problem existed, Group A thought that one day the problem might exist. So Group A went on high alert and became fearful and distrusting. Then Group B responded in kind to the threatening behavior, and Group B went on high alert. Next thing you know, both groups were backed into corners, both felt targeted by the other, and both believed that the only way to save themselves was to strike preemptively. And yet, the truth of the matter was that neither group had a problem with the other. In our story today, the nation of Israel stood on the brink of civil war, in not so different a way that we, here 3,000 years later, are in our world. Our society, supposedly far more enlightened than these animal-sacrificing itinerants from the Bronze Age, nevertheless falls down this slippery slope constantly in international politics, office politics, racial tensions, gender tensions, religious tensions, where there are opposing philosophies, where there are two individuals who act upon unfounded assumptions. With each group feeling threatened by the other, ready to fight against the other, I wonder how many of these validations are valid, which develop from something real, and which spark to life out of thin air. While the type of situation in which the Israelites found themselves might be common enough, they somehow managed to achieve a very rare outcome. Peace. Yes, peace. Not further aggression or hostility or all-out war, but peace. Even dubbing that contentious altar witness, because it stood as a witness between those on the east, those on the west, and God in their midst. Of course, the million-dollar question is, how? Indeed, who were these superhuman diplomats, and where did they learn their techniques? Was it through perspective-enhancing alien pheromones? Doubtful. No, but based off of what is remembered in the book of Joshua, they use something far more potent. Communication. Yes, each side met with the other, talked, listened, 
resolved their differences, allayed their fears, and averted tragedy. Although the Nine and a Half had gathered their tribes at Shiloh, prior to their preemptive foin, they took a moment and said, Hey, let's go talk to them first. And when the representatives met, they were genuine. None of this playing it close to the chest, lying to keep an advantage, spinning the truth to save face. Rather, they were genuine. Snippy? Yes. On edge? Yes. But honest. Yes, they were honest. The nine and a half said, From what we can tell, you are committing an atrocity against God. Every time this has happened in Israel's past, where one group blasphemes God, the entire nation suffered. Can we not do that again? If this land you're in is corrupt or, or cursed or for whatever reason insalubrious, then come join us on the other side. For if you intend to break God's instruction and build your own altar and sacrifice upon it, then the whole nation will suffer. Open and raw. But now the two and a half reply back with equal candor. If we built this in disobedience to God, then may the Lord, who knows all things, strike us where we stand. No, but believe us, we do not intend to sin with this altar, but we do need some type of security that you won't ever push us out of God's covenant because we live far away where it's easy to forget about us, and we being fewer in number. That's why we built this. It's a symbol of our membership in Israel. We would never even think to use it for sacrifices or anything else in opposition to God's will. With both sides' real concerns laid bare, having spoken what they came to say, and listened to the other for the very words that were being spoken, the result was a veritable miracle. Everybody won. Reuben, Gad, and the half of Manasseh retained their security, and the nine and a half were reassured of their place before God. This story is fascinating, not only for everything we've mentioned so far, but also for how different it could have been. Instead of sending ten legates and a priest, the nine and a half could have sent an army. Instead of hear each other's concerns and take them at face value, they could have closed up and become defensive. Instead of get to the heart of the matter, they could have told lies, hoping to end the colloquy on a falsehood, intending to return at once and take action against the other. Of course, those things did not happen. They talked through their differences. Indeed, it sounds so cliché, so banal, so obviously doomed to fail. But how many people actually try it? How often do those of differing views, two individuals, or two demographics, or two nations, actually meet their rivals, speak candidly, and listen thoughtfully? How often do we fail to confront a classmate or coworker because we already know what their response will be? How often do we supposedly know the motivations of another before we ask? I would be genuinely shocked if anyone felt like that happened too much rather than too little. Perhaps, going forth, we can change that. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. 
My name is Ben Laboot, and I invite you to join again in two weeks when we'll look at another story in which good communication was the key to saving the nascent Christian movement. Consider bringing a friend or sharing about it on social media. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories of Symmetry, and you can find blogs, episodes, and more at storiesofsymmetry.com. Over the next two weeks, give wholesome dialogue a chance, beginning with the people in your home, then out to your social connections, and beyond. Until next time, go with God, go in peace.